Well, you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. As we continue our Lord's Supper series on the covenants, uh, we started in Genesis with the covenant of works, uh, made our way through the kingdom of creation, covenant of works, Noahic covenant. We looked at the kingdom of Israel, that is the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And now we've been looking at the, uh, the kingdom of Christ. So we saw the new covenant which is the covenant given to us. It's the kingdom of God, uh, but that is founded on the eternal transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is called the covenant of redemption. So we'll spend some more, uh, spend tonight thinking about that and meditating on it once again in Luke verses 22, verses 24 through 30. So I'll read those chapters for us. Uh, Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves." But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, in order that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, thank you again for your plan of redemption. And thank you, O God, that the Son did not come to be served, but to serve. And we're thankful again, O God, for your mercy and for your goodness towards us. We confess, O God, so often we are like these disciples, desiring greatness, desiring honor from men. But we know, O God, because of the foolishness of the gospel, because of the hatred of man against God, all those who are yours shall receive much shame in this world. And we know, O God, even if we should not receive shame, there is still much suffering that we endure in this fallen, present evil age in which we live. There are so many things that are perplexing, so much, so, uh, so many conundrums that are hard for us to deal with and wrestle with. We want things to be right, oh God, yet things are not. And so we're thankful that you make all things right in the Son. Thank you, O oh God, that you give sinners a righteousness, not their own, in the Son, through faith in the Son. And so we're thankful, O oh God, that we even see this through your blessed kingdom proclamation, namely uh, salvation of souls. And so may we appreciate that the certainty of the kingdom coming in is based on who you are, that you are the God who does not change, and your promises are sure, and your decrees are sure as well. So may we take great comfort in this as your people, especially as we change, as we see change and decay all around us. And we ask you, O God, who changes not, we pray that you would abide with us day by day. And so we ask, O God, you would abide with us tonight by your spirit. May we know your presence amongst us in your word today as we come and consider your word, come and consider these blessed truths. May this time be a time of edification for your people. May our hearts be lifted and encouraged in your work. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the covenant of redemption certainly is a great mystery for the people of God as we consider the fact that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted to save sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many mysteries in the Christian religion. The Trinity certainly is one. The hypostatic union that we talked about this morning is one. The decree is one, and also the covenant of redemption and our salvation as well. But the Bible is very clear, and God reveals himself to us by way of covenant. And as God speaks to us in his word, he reveals that his plan is covenantal. And so we've seen how the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted to save sinners in Ephesians. We saw the Father's plan, the Son's accomplishment, and the Spirit's application in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Well, we also see tonight clear language that speaks of the covenant between the Father and the Son and how that is uh, uh, the eternal backdrop for the covenant for which God enters into with sinners based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see very clear language in verse 29, and I bestow or covenant upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. So even though this is a hard doctrine for us to understand, the Bible is very clear 
And the Bible is explicit when it comes to this doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Sam Renahan says, Scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind metaphorically in the mode of a covenant transacted between the persons of the Trinity. And so even as well, when we consider the plan of God, when we consider the covenant of redemption, we must remember that it's one will in threefold execution. There are not three wills in operation, but it's our one God engaging to save sinners and the persons engaging to save sinners in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which we see this accomplished, as we saw in Ephesians 1, 7 through 12, is the redemption found in the Son, the work found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which we see the Son saving is in the King who serves. That is, we see the one who humbled himself by making himself of no reputation and taking on the form of a servant. Coming down into this world, becoming incarnate, is a great work of humility by the one who took on human flesh. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. And this differs from mankind in our sinful state, doesn't it? You see, rather than serving, we want to be served. That's the opposite of what the servant does. That's the opposite of what the son does. We want to be fond all over. We want people to praise us. We want people to build us up rather than serving other people. We want ambition and we want esteem. And this is the problem the disciples had. So it shouldn't be surprising when we have it as well. They had this problem that they wanted to be the greatest, or they want to know who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But as we study and consider God's plan of salvation, it ought not to lead us to want to know who would be the best, but ought to lead us and teach us and renew our humility uh, in our hearts and our minds concerning who we are and concerning who God is and what he has done for his people. That is, we have a king who served us and a king who served us by saving us and by redeeming us. And as we'll see, he's going to honor us as well, not because of anything good, but because he is righteous and perfect in every way. And the way in which he does this is by way of covenant. And so what we see in these verses is that Jesus covenants to the disciples a kingdom, just as the Father covenanted to him and bestowed to him a kingdom. And we will receive all the benefits of that kingdom. We will receive all the splendor of that kingdom because of the goodness and the greatness of the Son, and not because there's any goodness or greatness in you. And so we'll look at this idea under the banner of honor. And so we'll look at it under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the honor of kings, verses 24 through 27. And secondly, we'll see the honor of the king, verses 28 through 30. So the honor of kings, verses 24 through 27. And secondly, the honor of the king, verses 28 through 30. So let's first look at the honor of kings, verses 24 through 27. And notice the disciples want greatness again. Now, their timing is very poor here. Some people have bad timing. Sometimes I have bad timing, and their timing was really bad. Because notice the context prior to their dispute. Well, verse 24, it says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Well, Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper, and Jesus' purpose, or what Luke emphasizes here, is that the king is going to be absent. Jesus says, he says, I will not eat of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not drink of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So it is the last supper. It is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then in his discussion of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Treachery, betrayal. And so they're talking, verse 23, hey, wow, who would be the one to betray the Lord Jesus Christ? And somehow that snowballed into who would be the greatest. I mean, they start talking about who's going to be the one who betrays. Well, let's figure out the other end of the spectrum as well. Who's going to be the one who sits at the right hand of God most high? Now, they've done this a lot. They've done this often, and they continue to struggle with hand, foot, in mouth disease. Christians struggle with that so much, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Another one we struggle with is chicken with our head cut off syndrome. 
That is, we don't trust in the promises of God. We don't trust in the providence of God. And so we run around, even as Calvinists, like a chicken with our head cut off. And so for them, it's hand, foot, and mouth disease. Perhaps you struggle with that like I do. And also chicken with our head cut off syndrome. But here it's hand, foot, and mouth disease. And so after Jesus says all these things, they dispute, they, or they, they question who would uh, be the, the betrayer. They then snowball into who would be the greatest. They lack awareness. They show their foolishness and Jesus corrects them. And notice in this case, Jesus doesn't chide them. Jesus is very gracious. If someone were typically when someone's timing is bad, we're not the nicest people to them. And notice Jesus is very gracious to them here. And he's going to be even more gracious in verse 28 as well. But he's very kind here. And notice what he says. Notice the question he asks them in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. That idea of being called a benefactor could be in the mind of the king, the one who lords it over. Look, look at all these wonderful things I'm doing for this kingdom. Or it could be in the subjects. Wow, look at all the wonderful things he's doing for this kingdom. But sometimes... Uh, people turn a blind eye to the bad things those benefactors so-called do. They sometimes explain away and excuse all their lordship, all their lording over, and all of their tyranny. And so what Jesus is saying here, as he uses the examples of the kings of the world, what he is saying here is, you hate tyrants. Why act like a tyrant? You hate it when people brag. Why do you brag? Brother, we struggle with that as well. We hate braggers. We hate people who boast, yet we do it all the time. We love to praise ourselves. We love to esteem ourselves. We love to promote ourselves so often. Another sad reality we sometimes don't reckon with or don't like to admit is we're all little tyrants. You see, the reality is we hate the tyrants who want to crush us and take away our dreams and, you know, suffocate us by, you know, destroying the economy. We don't realize we act like tyrants in our own home. We don't realize we want control of everything in our own home. We don't realize in churches, people, pastors want control of everything in the church. We must understand our place in this world. We act like tyrants in so many different ways. It happens, again, in families, in churches, and in jobs. And so Jesus is saying, why? Why, if you hate such things, why, if you hate such men, why would you act in a similar sort of fashion? Jesus uses similar language at another time when the disciples struggle with who would be the greatest or question who would be the greatest. I have Mark 10 in mind because we went through the gospel of Mark, but he does say in Mark 10, 41 and following, he says, Jesus speaking to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And this is after the 10 get mad at James and John. Remember, that's James and, or James and John's mother, their mama's boys, and they say, the mom asked Jesus, where will my boys sit in the kingdom? And then, you know, Jesus tells them, are you able to, you know, be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Are you able to suffer in the way that I am going to suffer? And they will suffer, not in the same way, but they're going to suffer as servants, just like the master does. But he cannot give them or grant them to sit at my right hand or left. And that's when the other disciples don't like it. And so Jesus says there as well, uh, you know that these ones lord it over. And so he's giving and given important lessons concerning the kingdom. Actually, Luke 22 verses 24 through 30 is unique to Luke. It's in nowhere else in the scriptures, but certainly ideas or similar problems arise in other parts in God's word. So what Jesus is trying to teach here, like he does in Mark 10, is greatness of the kingdom is not found in kings. The greatness of the king is not found in receiving esteem like kings, but the greatness of the kingdom is being found in the king of kings, being found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and being found in the one who served. And if he is the one who serves, and he, his kingdom is about forgiveness, his kingdom is about others, should not the people of God be about others rather than ourselves? And so he goes on to explain that in verses 26 and 27. 
the greatness of the kingdom is the one who is like the littlest, the smallest. Verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. And a repeated word throughout the section is service, is ministering. How it is, the king, or what the ethic of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. It is forgiveness, but also service. And notice he uses that image there of younger and the one who serves like a servant. Now, remember in the Greco-Roman world, a, sir, a slave was really considered nothing. A slave was considered absolutely nothing, less than human. Uh, it was the lowest of the low. But sometimes children were as well based on their status, not because they're, you know, it's mainly because they're little. That was kind of the emphasis that is there. That's a f- so different from our modern context, right? I mean, young people, hopefully at that time, or at least it's understood at that time, kind of knew their place in the world. They knew to be quiet. They didn't think they were 10 feet, eight feet tall and bulletproof. They knew to keep their mouths shut. That's so different from our modern context. I mean, young people nowadays do think we're eight feet tall and bulletproof. I'm in that young category, eight feet tall and bulletproof, that we have everything right. We know everything. We got it all down. Everything's fine. We've read one page of something, and we know everything about that subject just by reading that one page. We got it down. So we tweet about it. We Facebook about it because we think people care about what we have to say. So different for them. In reality, young people should just be quiet and just listen. And we should just know our place in this world, right? To defer. And that's typically what they did as well. Again, the young people, in a lot of, we, a lot of ways, were meant to be seen and not, and not heard. And so if one is to serve, one must understand they're not that important. That's the first thing, right? We're not actually that important. God loves us. God cares for us. God is gracious towards us. But comparatively, we're really not that important. Again, it magnifies the goodness of God. But again, it ought to teach us to know our place in this world. And the kingdom of God is not about our self-promotion, but it's about service to others. Jesus does a similar thing in Mark 9. Again, fighting over who is the greatest. On the way to Capernaum in Mark 9, verses 33 through 37, they disputed. Then they kept silent because Jesus knew what they were doing. And so he sat down, verse 35, and called the 12 and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child. And remember, I think, I I have to remember my notes, but I think uh, that Luke is the only one who emphasizes, or Mark is the only one who emphasizes that very thing. He actually grabs that little child and puts him in his arms. He takes that little one who would be considered less than society and puts him in his arms as a symbol and as a sign of what he does for wretches like you and I, how he carries cares for us, how he loves us, how we are kept in his care. He set them in the midst, set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That is, we ought to consider the least of these by considering ourselves as the least. So it should not be that the disciples, even at this last hour where Jesus is about to go and die, should be concerned for themselves. They should be concerned for others. And he goes on to say in verse 27, he asks a rhetorical question, which he answers, for who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves is not he who sits at the table. Now, this is uh, con- uh, what he's an- the question he's answering here is uh, with respect to what kings of the Gentiles would do. Typically, we think it's the one who is served. But yet, verse 27, but yet I am among you as the one who serves. And don't lose sight of the fact that he says, I am. How is it that we have the one who is I am among us? We talked about God's dwelling amongst us this morning. And how does he dwell with us? Well, he dwells with us in the sun. 
And perhaps it's not as drawn out as it is in Colossians, but he says, I am among you. Yahweh is with his people walking among them. When Jesus walks upon the water, Yahweh is amongst them. He passes by in Mark's gospel, which is very similar to uh, Exodus 34, when Yahweh passes by Moses, same language there. I am is with you. I am is among you. I am is with you. Now, Luke spends a lot of time at the beginning unpacking how God becomes man without relinquishing anything of his deity, how he takes on human flesh. But the comforting thing is, I am has been with them the entire time. And when you consider rulers, when you consider high uh, CEOs, do they really care for their people? Or is it just a photo op? I feel like for our leader, it's just a photo op, right? I always have to throw one of those digs in there every time, but I feel like it is just a photo op. He doesn't care about the people. They don't care about the people. They have their ideas of grandeur. That's what they want. They don't consider the needs of people. Yahweh's different. Yahweh is among you. The king is among you. And one of the blessed things of the Lord's Supper is Christ's abiding presence. I mean, again, the context, the preceding section is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And again, I think the emphasis of Luke is the way in which one can see the kingdom when the Son is gone from them in his human nature. When the Son is away from them, how is it that we see the Son? How is it we see the King? How is it we can be affirmed of his abiding presence well he a it says he's with us and b he gives us a visible picture of his gospel and also gives us a visible picture and the bible teaches us that christ nourishes us in his word and as we partake of his word uh uh with uh, the sign of what it uh, the sign and what it signifies so the supper is a blessed thing it's a reminder and a assurance of christ's abiding presence because he is the one who humbled himself and is among you and notice, he's not just among you, but he's among you as the one who serves. Isn't this where Mark or Jesus drives in Mark 10, in that section where they ask about the greatest, and in Matthew 20 as well? He drives to the point where he says that the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served, but to serve. And how does he serve us, brethren? By giving his life. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. He not only took on human flesh and came in the likeness of man, but he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We see this one who is God take on and become like man and perfect man and or a perfect man like us in every way, yet without sin, and then die in our stead. And so if the king of kings is with his people and serves them, should not his people serve him and serve others? This is the emphasis of Jesus in John 13. I think hopefully John 13 was in your mind as we see the one who serves. This is when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Then he says in verse uh, 12, through, uh, 12 and following, do you not know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then we see Jesus later on in that gospel and later on in all the gospels go to die on behalf of his people to serve them with his dying and rising and ascending and his session currently at the right hand. We see the king who did not seek the honor of kings, but the one who ought to be honored and glorified as the king of kings, yet the king of kings serves us. And he serves us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as redeemed saints, as God's people, if we receive the king by faith in Christ, we should avoid seeking the honor of men. Mainly avoid seeking our 
honor. Again, we have to be honest with ourselves. The honor of kings is something for which we aspire. Otherwise, we wouldn't have social media, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have Twitter. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Facebook. Otherwise, we wouldn't have those sorts of things. Otherwise, we wouldn't post everything. Even when it comes to so-called good things, we sometimes like everybody to see it, right? Ryle says, the hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Is the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. Is the man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. Is the man who spans and is spent to make the vice and misery of the world less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, and to raise the poor. This is the truly great man in the eyes of God. And I'd like to add as well, truly great men don't need the pomp and show of the world, right? They don't need to be seen by everybody else. I'm going to give you, tell you about my pet peeve. I have a lot of pet peeves, dear brethren, and it'd be fun to have a YouTube channel called the pastor's pet peeves, but that violates what I'm about to say. You know what really bugs me above all? It bothers me when people take good things like devotions, like sermons, like sermon prep, and they like to parade that all over social media. Look at the sermon I did. Look at the devotions I'm doing. Look at these wonderful things. Do you really need to brag about it? Do we really need to show it before everybody? Or is God's honor enough? That is something we have to ask ourselves each and every day. Because brethren, pride is going to be with us until Christ comes back. We need to ask God to help us and to humble us. And usually the humbling part is very hard. The humbling part is very hard, and we need to ask God to humble us in this world. Now, thankfully, if we're all about ourselves and we struggle with pride and arrogance, don't forget there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ, right? There's mercy and forgiveness in the Son. There's mercy and forgiveness in the King who serves and died for all our sins. Even the sins where we take good things and make them bad vices and bad gods. And don't forget, Peter denied Christ. That's the next section. Peter denied Christ and Christ forgave Peter. Isn't our God gracious and good that he did not seek the honor of kings, but he sought to serve. And so we ought to seek then the honor of the king. If we are to avoid the honor of kings, let us seek then the honor of the king, which is verses 28 through 30. And notice the goodness of him in these verses. Notice in verse 28, we see the king who commends. The disciples certainly have their problems and faults. You certainly and I certainly have our problems and faults. But they did remain with Jesus through his earthly ministry. He says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Ridiculed, challenged. And there's going to be one who betrays. I know the disciples are going to scatter in a little bit. But they have been with him up until now. But they're still going to have to learn some hard lessons about the kingdom. See, the kingdom is not all pomp and show, but the kingdom of God comes through much tribulation, right? And trials play an important role when we consider the kingdom bestowed and we consider the gifts and the blessings of the kingdom in verse 30. The disciples still have their Jewish understanding of the kingdom. We'll take out Rome, we'll get our tanks, everything's going to be great, and we're all going to live in glory. But that's not what Jesus, so the kingdom of God is, is it? That's not how the kingdom of God comes in. It's going to come in through the one who serves. And the one who serves is the one who's been ridiculed, the one who's been shamed in this world, the one who died in the most shameful way upon that cross. And much like the servants ought to be like the master in service, so too will the servants suffer trials like the master does as well. And so this is good preparation for these disciples. These disciples need to know that they are going to endure trials, and Jesus tells them. And even after they scatter, Jesus forgives them. They learn hard lessons with their scattering. They learn hard lessons about what the kingdom is. It's important for us to see that most of the time, and sometimes it is our hard trials that correct our deepest errors. 
They had to be scattered. They were scattered, even though it was terrible what they did. They learned a great lesson through that very thing. What the kingdom of God is. Christ, who is resurrected in power, Christ, who forgives, brings in a kingdom about forgiveness. But as that kingdom comes in, there's going to be suffering. They had to learn that the hard way. And brethren, most of the time when we have deep errors in this world, we have to learn that the hard way. We have to learn the difficult way. We're never sanctified on the beach, as Pastor Butler says so often. And the disciples learned that, didn't they? Jesus endured trials culminating in his death. The disciples suffered culminating in his death. I mean, read the book of Acts, right? All the suffering that they endured for the king. The Christian is not going to receive honor in this world, but shame. And what's so special is that even though we deserve shame, the king will honor us. Notice that's what we see with this language of covenant. He's going to honor us, not because we are great, because he is, and because he is gracious. And the way in which we see his graciousness is by way of covenant, verse 29. And we see, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me. Notice we see two things there, a covenant with the disciples and a covenant between the son and the father. Now, some people are like, Mike, where do you see the word covenant there? Well, I see it in the word bestow. It is the verbal form of the word for covenant. And in fact, the other five times it's used in the Bible it's used in covenantal contexts. So I think a proper translation should be and would be, I covenant upon you a kingdom, just as my father covenanted one upon me. And also notice the context. When Jesus refers to the blood, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he's spoken about the kingdom of God when it is fulfilled. The sign until that time Christ comes again. So covenant and kingdom very much are in view here. And as I said, the other times the word is used, it's used in Hebrews 8.10 and Hebrews 10.16. And the idea of cutting a covenant in connection with Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Berit karat, that's the old covenant way of making or cutting a covenant. That's what we see in this language here. It's also used in Acts 3.25 to refer the covenant God made with Abraham. So the idea of covenant very much is in view in this section. And so we see, how is it that we receive honor? How is it that we receive everlasting life? Well, I bestow upon you a kingdom. Though we might suffer in this world, we have a kingdom, and we have the kingdom of God. And brethren, we have that now, don't we? We have the kingdom inaugurated. And when I refer to the kingdom of God, I really mean the salvation of souls. I mean the preaching of the gospel. This is very explicit in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What Christ wins for us is a kingdom. And we enter into that kingdom by way of covenant. And that's why as well, Sam Renahan refers to covenant in connection with kingdom. Who is Christ? We have a kingdom, which is the church. And we have a covenant charter, which is the New Testament for the new covenant people. We're no longer under that old covenant that was broken, that was breakable, but we're under the new covenant because we have a mediator of a better covenant, namely Christ Jesus. So the assurance and comfort is if you are in Christ, the new covenant cannot be broken. And the way in which you enter into that new covenant and enter into that kingdom is as he says, repent and believe the gospel. When I say enter into the covenant, what I'm saying is, come and find mercy and forgiveness in Christ. We're proclaiming the gospel. That's what it is. And if you believed on Christ, you've entered into that blessed covenant with him. And if you believed upon him and rest upon Christ, that covenant can never be taken away. Assurances, comfort, even in a world full of trials, it cannot be taken away. And this is what he's trying to do for them here. I went through trials. 
The implication is you're going to go through trials, but I've given you a kingdom and that kingdom can never be taken away from you. God has saved and God has given and Christ has accomplished and it cannot be removed. And notice as well, not only is it assured because of what he says and because of his finished work, but also because of who God is. Just as my father covenanted one upon me. Clear covenant of redemption language in connection with the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption is that eternal backdrop and foundation of our covenant standing with God. And as we consider the covenant of redemption and what it is, as we consider it um, in the, the eternity, in eternity past, that eternal covenant, we must remember that when it comes to God's will, the will of God is his essence. Remember, the revelation of covenant is for our pea-sized small brains. It's not as though the, the persons were deliberating like you and I would deliberate. That's to help us. But really, it's help us to see that if it is in the will of God, which is his essence, it is also immutable because God is immutable. This covenant cannot be taken away based upon the finished work of Christ and based upon who he is and based upon the eternal plan of God. And in that eternal transaction, we see the father promised to give a kingdom to the son and the son willingly, John 10, he lays down his life willingly. He is the one who, um, who says, I will take on human flesh to save these poor, miserable wretches. Eternal plan of God for salvation, that the Son would become incarnate to save his people. And there's other language in the Bible that speaks in this way. We've already seen in Ephesians 1, or perhaps Psalm 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies uh, your footstool. Now, certainly there, David is looking ahead to his greater son who would come, but the accomplishment of the greater son who would come is eternally founded, right? When does Yahweh say to my Adonai? There are two different words for Lord there, Yahweh and Adonai. When does God say that very thing? Or as well, when you see in Psalm 2, you are my son, I will tell of the decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, looking ahead to David's greater son who would come, you are my son, as the Father says at the baptism of our Lord, which has Psalm 2 in the background there. But again, when did he say such a thing? And so our salvation, our covenant with God is founded on his eternal, infinite and gracious plan. Do you see how practical this language can be? How practical this doctrine can be? That what the God, the Father, Son, and Spirit planned in eternity, we see accomplished in the Son, we see applied by the Holy Spirit, and we see it continually applied as sinners come to saving knowledge in Christ. All those to whom the Father gives me, I will in no wise cast out. That ought to give us much comfort, brethren, in a fallen, perplexing, inconsistent, unfair world. And we've learned about how fallen, unfair, and inconsistent the world is with Ecclesiastes. It's comforting because it just gives you perspective. The world's fallen, but it also is hard for us. It still doesn't change the fact we have to deal with those very things. And as we deal with those very things, we know that we have a kingdom. We have it now, and we shall have it in its full when Christ comes again. And so he's giving them assurances. I covenant to you a kingdom, just as my father covenanted one to me. And notice the purpose for this. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and that you may sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice two things. We see how we're going to have joy in the kingdom. 
even though we suffer and face ridicule in this world, there will be a time, and I think verse 30 does primarily refer, or at least eating especially refers to the time when Christ comes back. I think the latter part can apply to now and when Christ comes back. But note that you may eat and drink in my kingdom. Why I think it is referring to the consummation when Christ comes back is because he's something to eat until then, right? Which is the Lord's Supper, which is exactly what he says in verses 14 through 23. I give you these things. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes in. The supper is a present and a future meal that gives us comfort for what comes for the people of God. And so one of the joys of the new heavens and new earth is that after we suffer a while, we shall eat. And we shall eat in the new heavens and new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. That's a little different from what we have to deal with now. In Psalm 23, he says, I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Now, that's comforting that we have time to eat a full meal when we have enemies surrounding us. But there's going to come a time when there's going to be no more enemies surrounding us. Christ's enemies will be made his footstool. And brethren, that should comfort us when there are enemies who stick their their, their feet upon our faces and try to push them down. Christ is going to come back. And even though we suffer... We shall, A, eat with him in his kingdom, and we shall reign with him in his kingdom. I do think there's application to not just the disciples, but all of God's people. I'll get to that in just a second. So we're going to eat. There's going to be joy. But also, there's going to be ruling and reigning. And sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How do we take this? I mean, I struggled to wrestle through what exactly this means. I think there's two things going on here. Read smarter men than me. You might get a better uh, understanding. But two things I think are going on. One, they're going to judge ethnic Israel. And they're going to judge all those who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, and we see similar language in Matthew 19, 28. In Matthew 19, 28... He says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the things we see in the Gospels, especially as we saw in Mark, is he's doing away with the old covenant because the new is coming in. And what the new highlights is it's no longer based on ethnic descent or ethnicity, but it's based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if one does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be judged. And think about that in in context with the idea of suffering. Those who killed you, you will reign over them. Those who persecuted you, you shall judge those ones. So I think that is what is going on there, or one aspect of what is going on there. After you suffered by them, you shall rule over them. And don't forget, many of the Jews rejected Jesus. Many of the Jews rejected the gospel. Many of the Jews rejected Christ as Messiah. And so Christ judges them, and these ones will judge as they reign with him as well. So I think that's one aspect. The other aspect is that they rule over spiritual Israel. They rule over the church. And brethren, they still rule over the church, do they not? Do they still not have apostolic authority, even though they've died? Do we still not read their, certainly it's the books, uh, it's God's word, but they're the ones who wrote it and still function as officers of the universal church. They still remain officers of the universal church. Even though they're dead, they still have much authority for us. And they are the ones who rule. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles, Ephesians says. And uh, uh, so there's those two things going on, I think, that are there. They're the ones who build the church, the ones who rule over the church, and they're the ones who judge the 12 tribes of ethnic Israel. Henry says, God gave his son a kingdom among men, the gospel church 
of which he is the living, quickening, ruling head. This kingdom he appointed to his apostles and their successors in the ministry of the gospel. They should enjoy the comforts, privileges, and privileges of the gospel. Help to communicate them to others by gospel ordinances. Sit on thrones as officers of the church, not only declaratively, but exhortatively. Judging the tribes of Israel that persist in their infidelity and denouncing the wrath of God against them and ruling the gospel Israel, the spiritual Israel, by the instituted discipline of the church administered with gentleness and love. So he seems to, that's where uh, I think he was very helpful with that. Gil was very helpful with this section as well. But I think the emphasis primarily is, they who suffer shall reign. They who suffer shall rule. They who suffer shall have benefits and blessings forevermore. And this is an to all of God's people. And in fact, this is an encouragement in the book of Revelation. You can turn with me to Revelation 3.21. I know everybody has their view of Revelation. As I like to say, mine is accurate. Mine is the right one. Uh, But uh, Revelation, uh, I do think Revelation is about the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his rule and his reign. It's comfort to those who suffer, comfort to the persecuted church, comfort to those who aren't just persecuted but suffer in this world. But He does say in Revelation 3.21, and we need God's grace to help us overcome, but notice what he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What's a promise to the people of God who suffer in this world? We shall reign with Christ. And even though our heads are lopped off, we shall reign with Christ. And that's exactly what is said in Revelation 20. I know everybody's got their views again of what the thousand years means. I I have my view of what the thousand years means. I think the thousand years is figurative to refer the time between Christ's first and second coming. And why is that comforting for us? Because those thousand years is a time of tribulation and sorrow and sadness when we might have our head lopped off, right? We might be hung for our faith. We might be given to the lions for our faith, or you know, we might be shamed in this world, all those sorts of things. But notice the language. He says in verse 4, then I saw the souls. That's why I think it's not souls and bodies, but souls. I think it's referring to the time between Christ's first and second coming. But anyway, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. The souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. Those who are willing to die. For, uh, for the sake of Christ, those who are willing to go the way that the master went. And he says, who had not, uh, uh, for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the comfort and encouragement is, brethren, we have received a kingdom, and we shall receive the crown of life, but prior to the crown of life, we must endure the cross, just as our Lord endured the cross, obviously not in the same way, but as we walk this world, as we, as we deal with problems, as we deal with our own corruption, as we deal with the world, with um, uh, uh, Satan, as we deal with those that, uh, those, that unholy trinity, We must recognize that as we walk this world, we must suffer, and we will suffer. We must recognize that we shall bear the cross before we receive the crown of life. That lesson was hard for the disciples. That lesson is hard for us, but ought to give us comfort and encouragement that though we go through trials, we shall receive joy and splendor and honor that pales in comparison to all the suffering that we endure in this world. And the reason is because Jesus died for his people. He suffered for his people, and he gives a covenant and a kingdom to his people. And I'll close with just hopefully a few comforting thoughts. As we walk this world, brethren, as we seek the honor of the king, What I primarily mean by that, yes, in our life, we ought to honor the king. But the primary thing we ought to emphasize is trust in the king. 
When life grows dark, when life grows harsh, don't forget the promises of God. He has given you a kingdom and you shall eat with him at his table in my kingdom and you shall sit with him. This is where it becomes very practical when we ask the question for ourselves and I ask it for you, do you suffer? Do I suffer? And suffering isn't just persecution, by the way. Suffering is sin and the effects of sin. So all the bad stuff is suffering. We suffer, brethren. It's a harsh, wicked, fallen, difficult, perplexing world filled of enigmas. And we have a king we can rely upon in those moments in whom we can trust. We will suffer and we will eat with him in the kingdom And he gives us comfort and reminders of that even now. And the comfort as well is that this king who serves remains with us even now as he guides us, as he walks with us, as he leads us by the hand as we make our way to that celestial city. And brethren, after we've suffered but a little while, we shall reign with him. May that give you comfort as you endure whatever suffering God has brought upon you. Whatever frowning providence that God has placed before you, remember the king, remember Christ, remember his covenant, and remember the gifts he gives to you because of what he has done for us. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for your comfort and reminders of the kingdom of God and of the work of the king. Thank you, O king, that you are among us. Thank you, O king, that you serve us. Thank you, O king, that you died for us. Thank you for your grace and for your love. We confess, O God, we do not fully understand or fully comprehend the fullness of your love, for your love is infinite. Yet we thank you, O God, we see it manifest in the work of the Son. Thank you for the blessings of the new covenant. Thank you, O God, for the blessings of the kingdom of God. Thank you that has been inaugurated and it shall be consummated. And we do pray and ask that you would come quickly. We pray, O God, that you'd bring an end to all the sadness and sorrow that is in this world. We pray, O God, that you would redeem sinners. We pray, O God, you'd make your enemies your footstool. And we pray, O God, in whatever trial or struggle we endure, whether we deal with our own flesh, remaining corruption, whether we deal with the world or deal with Satan, help us to know we have you who walks with us and help us to know we have your word and help us, oh God, to be also be reminded that we are a people of hope. We have hope of heaven, the hope of Christ's return. We have hope of the promises of the gospel. So may we cling to those promises in this world of suffering and sorrow. So we ask, oh God, you'd comfort our hearts. Be with us now as we come to your Lord's Supper. May it be an encouragement. May it be nourishment to us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.